Well, after that, I feel like a water pistol at a three-alarm fire. Can I just ask, who's thankful for Jesus today? Anybody? Hearing him exalted like they just did in song and as we've done and worshiped him today. Oh, my goodness. If the Christmas season does anything, it ought to make us give our highest praise to the Lord for what he's done for us. I got something on my heart today. Okay? I promise it will be less than two hours. I promise. <clears throat> that whole thing about my shortest sermon ever, Becky leaned over to me and she said, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> so, hallelujah. There was a wealthy man and his son who loved to collect rare works of art. They had an extensive collection, including many works from famous painters, and they would often, the father and the son would sit together and admire these great works of art. The son went off to war, and one day the father received that letter that no father wants to receive, no mother wants to receive, saying that the son had died saving the life of a fellow soldier. A few years later, that soldier whose life had been saved by their son came to visit the father. Now, this soldier was an amateur painter, and he had done a portrait of the son a few days before he had died. The painting was not really done all that well. But the father loved it, obviously, because it was his son, and he placed it in a position of prominence in his house. When the father died, there was, according to the will, to be a great auction of all the paintings that they had, and many influential people gathered, hoping for the opportunity to purchase one of the great masters for their collections. The auction opened with the painting of the rich man's son. It was the first one up. The auctioneer pounded his gavel, and he said, we will start the bidding with this picture of the man's son. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence. The silence grew even longer, became awkward, and finally there was a voice in the back of the room who shouted, we want to see the famous paintings. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. He said, will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? $100, $200. The sun, the sun, who will take the sun? And finally a voice came from the very, very back of the room, and it was the longtime gardener of the family, the man and his son, and he says, I'll give $10 for the painting. The auctioneer says, we have $10, who will bid 20? And the crowd became increasingly impatient. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their own personal collections. The auctioneer pounded the gavel. He said, going once, going twice, sold for $10. And a man sitting on the second row shouted, finally, now let's get on with this collection. The auctioneer laid down his gavel and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I am to announce to you that I'm sorry, but the auction is over. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation that had been given and laid out in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until actually this moment, until this exact time. Only the painting of the sun was actually scheduled to be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including all of the paintings. For you see, whoever receives the sun gets everything. 
It's all about the sun. Can I just get anyone to agree with me today on this fact that Christmas is all about Jesus? In fact, without Jesus, there is no Christmas. He truly is the reason for the season. So for just a few moments today, I want us to look at Christmas through the eyes of the prophet Isaiah. We know that Isaiah 7 reminds us that Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we're always uplifted when Isaiah 9 reminds us that Jesus is the light of the world. He's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God. He's the everlasting Father, oh, the mystery of the triune God. And He is the Prince of Peace. Today I want us to look at the real reason why Jesus was born. And that is this. Hear me carefully today. Jesus was born to die and to give his life for ours. He was born to suffer. Now, you're probably tempted to say to me, hey, Dan, Dan what's, uh, what about joy to the world and, and where's the jingle bell rock? And you know, Dan, this is the last Sunday before Christmas. Isn't this the Sunday you should preach a warm and fuzzy message? Shouldn't we be dancing out of here feeling great about Christmas? Well, my answer to that is simply this. There's lots of places where you can go and find the lights and the tinsel and, and all of that kind of stuff. But here's the truth. Until you truly understand who came to this earth for you, why he came to this earth for you, and the results of his coming for you, then, dear friend, you don't even have the first clue about Christmas. Off to a great start, aren't we? The warm, fuzzy stuff is nice. I can enjoy aspects of that myself. But if you'll give me just a few minutes, I think it's worth digging past our cultural presentation of this holiday and take a good look at the truth. How many want the truth today? Isaiah 53, join me there, Isaiah chapter 53, I'm starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. And yet, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from, from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus came to the earth to reveal God to us. And here's what I absolutely believe more this season than ever before in my life. Something about the, the Christmas season this year has awakened even a deeper level of worship, a deeper level of praise in my heart. And I believe anyone who truly has be, been regenerated, has been born again by the Spirit of God, will come to this Christmas season and they will understand this, how unbelievably great is our God. Can I get a witness to that today? Because of that fact alone, because of the fact that Jesus came to earth to reveal God, if the Christmas season does not expand your worship, dear friend, if it does not enlarge your view of a great and awesome God, then I would submit to you, you've got some work to do. You've got some understanding that you need to get to. Jesus lived, and he did many miracles, but that is not why he came. 
Jesus came to die for us. He came to give us his life as a sacrifice so that you and I could live. Somebody say hallelujah today. Do you realize how much God has designed us for life? Do you know that you are designed for life? Pardon this personal expression again, but as Becky and I continue to cope with the process of losing her mother, same situation that many of you have found yourself in, grieving the loss of a loved one. Here's what I've just thought about as we've gone through this process. We miss her, and what we miss is the life that was in her. We miss the life that was in going to her little apartment. We miss the life in hearing her play her guitar and, and sing. We miss the life that was in her laughter. We miss the life that was in her cooking, hallelujah. And that's why losing a loved one is so incredibly painful because it is the loss of life. And I remind you as poignantly as I can today that God has designed us for life. And Christ came and died so that you and I could live and have life to the full. Bless the name of the Lord. I also want to say this about this aspect of life. It struck me quite powerfully this week. How committed God is to life. How committed He is to life and how He gives it to us. What happened this week is I went to the hospital to visit the tiny little premature, presupremi baby of Christy Major Davis. Of Christy, and, and the baby was born at 23, 24 weeks, something like that. And she was less than two pounds when she was born, Christy and Greg. She was less than two pounds, like 1.5, a pound and a half. Christy said, and I got the privilege of holding that baby this week. Christy said, Dan, when she came, I could hold her in one hand. Hold her in one hand. And I sat there and I sat in that rocking chair and I held that little, she is today seven pounds. Now, I don't, I don't know what that does to you. But as I sat there and realized, as she told me, that baby was a pound and a half when she was born. And that today, she is seven pounds. And the good news is this. Some of the things they said could go wrong have not gone wrong. Her eyes are perfectly fine. The hole that was in her heart that she was born with has completely closed. Now, she's got a few more weeks to be there. There's some lung issues that have to be cleared up. But I sat there, and tears rolled down my face as I realized God is committed to life. If he could, in a pound and a half, put everything that that precious soul, that precious girl is going to need for life, and allow that to grow with almost this tiny little start, how committed is God to life? He has the ability and I, to, to put everything she needs and the healing power of Jesus is on that baby and all that she has need of in life is right there and today she's growing and expanding because God is committed to life. Hallelujah. Come on, give the Lord praise for that today. But for him to give us life, it was going to cost his. Isaiah reminds us as we see the truth of this, from the very beginning of the life of Christ, there was a threat and a cloud of death that hung over Christ right from the very beginning. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 2 that you know so well. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. 
About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of of religious law and said, "Um, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, in Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them what time the star first appeared, doing his calculations. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me too, so that I can go and worship him too. I don't think so. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house, and they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So we see that there was challenge on his life right from the very, very beginning because of what Herod's intentions were. Now, we don't know all that much about these wise men who came from the east. In the second century, an early church father named Tertullian suggested that the Magi were kings because the Old Testament had predicted that kings would come to worship him. Tertullian also concluded that there were three of them, that there would be three of them based upon the number of gifts mentioned, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So today in all of our nativity scenes and all of our Christmas pageants and all of that, we see three kings or three wise men. However, the Bible doesn't say that they were kings nor does the Bible say how many of them came. In the original language, they are called the Magi from an ancient Persian word, Magoi, M-A-G-O-I, which was used to describe people who acted in very strange ways. That was the word for that. They were into astrology. They were into spells and incantation, and they dressed in a very bizarre manner. Today we call them musicians. So, no, 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 no. The Latin word is magi, from which we get words like magician. We really don't know who they were. We don't really know where they came from, nor do we know exactly how many of them were there. And so, why why doesn't the book of Matthew give us all this information? Why is that not there? You know, and I, I can't say this for sure, but it's just a hunch that I have. Why is all information about who they were, where they came from, how many, those things that we, that we think we know because of our cultural tradition, that's really not in the Bible, why did Matthew not put them in there? And here's my hunch. What does it matter? I might even go so far as to say, and who cares? Because I'm suggesting that all of this detail that's left out of the picture in or, is, in the, is left out in order that the full emphasis may be placed on the one thing that is central to this story, and that is their statement, we have come to worship him. 
Jesus is the central character, not the Magi. Again, I say it, it's all about Jesus. Now, it's likely that these Magi were descendants of the ten tribes of Israel that remained in Babylon after the time of Daniel and were, and, and were then taken to Persia. Many of the Jews did not return to Israel after the captivity but chose to remain behind and they were assimilated into the culture and the religious practices of the Persians. So it's quite likely that these Magi may not have been very orthodox in their faith, we would say, but still they were looking for the coming Messiah and that because they took literally the statement from Numbers chapter 24 that says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And so as astrologists, they searched the skies for hundreds of years looking for a sign that the Messiah had come. And when they saw the star, we used to sing, they rejoice with great joy. And they keep singing, seeking the one who was born the king of the Jews. Well, great, Dan. That's all wonderful information. What does that mean for me today? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. Because it probably means more than you realize. Because come this Thursday night, or possibly Friday morning, it is likely that you'll be involved in the giving and receiving of gifts if you have not done so already with your family. And this happens for us because of the activity of the Magi. That's why we have today the tradition of giving gifts. And some families even go to the point of limiting the gifts that they give, even to their children, limiting limiting it to three as following the pattern of the Magi instead of the 85 or 90 gifts that some kids seem to get. I literally saw that on TV this week. All to reflect the gifts of the Magi to the Christ child. Now, I, I know there's some of you who've had your shopping done since last February, and I'm, I'm very happy for you. <clears throat> Me, on the other hand, Christmas is in how many days? Five days. I still have a little more to go. And we all frantically try to find that perfect gift for that special person that will express our feelings and our relationship with that person. So I want to take just a few moments this morning and go through the gifts of the Magi, which we find highly appropriate because they express the very essence of who Jesus is. The first is this, the gift of gold, which we're going to call the gift of obedience. The first gift recognized Jesus as being a king. The Magi knew that the star symbolized the birth of someone that was special, the king of the Jews. Gold carries obvious worth. Gold has always been seen as a symbol of great wealth and and great power. It is precious and worthy across all cultures and times. It is a gift fit for royalty. And so I'm going to ask you today, Bethesda, this Christmas, what gift will you give Christ as your king? as your king, even as I remind all of us that as people of the kingdom, our king deserves our allegiance. He deserves our ultimate obedience. The kingdom of God comes into our hearts when our hearts come under the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a difference in a person who truly has been born again by the Spirit of God. Something has happened. They are not the same person they were before. And unfortunately today, we still have many, many people in the church and certainly outside of the church who live in this Bible Belt and other parts of the country who have bought into the Christian culture. We have so many that, have, that are playing into the Christian culture. They know the right things to say. 
They know the words of the songs. They know the words of the hymns. Culturally, they understand it, but there has not been that regeneration of their soul and and who they are and bringing themselves in humble submission to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's what he's saying today. As a Christian, God asked for and he expects our obedience. One who has been truly born again has come under the lordship and the authority of King Jesus and they will obey him. That is the gift of gold that is fit for a king. We see examples of this all through the Bible. You've heard this scripture from 1 Samuel 15 where Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience and faithfulness means, very simply put, is here's what this means. To, call, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, you have surrendered your life to him, it means this. God calls the shots in your life. It means this in plain language. He's the boss. It means that our lives are totally controlled by him. It was Vance Havner who said there is no such thing as part-time loyalty to Christ. There is no such thing. Obedience means also more than just pretending to be good. Buying into the Christian culture as we referenced and knowing the right things to say and yet behind closed doors you become something else. True obedience to Christ is, is not where you just have this front that you put on, but you're something else. It's, it's, not a, it's a situation where your photograph and your mirror are the same, we talked about last week. You don't have one presentation that you want everybody to see that looks Christian and it matches the Christian culture, but the mirror that truly reflects who you are says something completely different. I heard the story of a mom who went to visit her son for dinner. The mom found out that her son was living in a two-bedroom apartment, but that he had a roommate. And then she discovered that that roommate was a girl. So during the course of the meal, his mother arrived to eat with them, and she couldn't help but notice how pretty and attractive his roommate was. And over the course of the evening, while watching the two interact, she started to wonder if there was something more between him and his roommate than what he had represented to, to her, to his mother. So reading his mom's thoughts and her body language and her eyes, her son volunteered, Mom, I know what you must be thinking, but I assure you, we are just roommates. About a week later, his roommate came to him saying, you know, um, something strange. Ever since your, your mom came to dinner, I've been unable to find that our silver plate. She said, you know, I hate to say this, but you don't suppose she cook it, do you? He said, well, I, you know, I, I doubt it. It's not like her, but I'll, I'll email her and ask her if she knows where it is, just, just to be sure. So he sat down and he wrote, dear mom, I'm not saying that you did take the silver plate from my house. I'm not saying that you did not take the silver plate from my house, but the fact remains that it has been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Love, your son. Well, several days later, he received an email reply from his mother, which read like this. Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with your roommate. And I'm not saying that you do not sleep with your roommate. But the fact remains that if she were sleeping in her own bed, by now she would have found the silver plate under her pillow. Love, mom. 
There's one thing to say to that. Don't mess with mama. And all the mamas in the house said, where's Linda Hervey when I need her? This Christmas, church, I encourage you to offer Jesus the gift of gold fit for a king, the gift of obedience. Is there an area in your life where you know that in the quiet of your heart, maybe no one else knows, but in the quiet of your heart, you are being disobedient to Christ? Maybe it's something you are doing that needs to stop. Maybe it's something that you are not doing that you should be doing. Let me frame it like this, saying the same thing another way. There's an old Christmas message that's been around forever, at least all of my life. I remember I've heard it preached. I'm sure you have heard it preached also, this idea, this thought at this time of year. I've certainly sung songs about it in Christmas cantatas and musicals. Our young people have no idea probably what a cantata is. Some may. And it's simply this. Have you any room for Jesus? We preached it, we sang it, we talked about it every Christmas. Have you any room for Jesus? And the obvious reference is to the innkeeper in the biblical narrative of the birth of Christ. No room in the inn. When they went to the inn and there was no place for them. And the challenge to all of us is to consider what is it in you? What is it in your heart that has, what has filled the rooms of your heart? What is crowding your heart? What is taking up all the space in your heart? And as you really begin to be honest about yourself and looking within and you walk down the hall of your heart and you open the first door, you may find that that room is, oh, no, that's, that's full. That, that room is full of anger. Anger that maybe you express Privately, maybe you express only to certain people, angry with your spouse, angry with your, 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 your parents, angry with your children, angry with your boss, angry with your pastor, whoever. That room is it's, it's full. There's no room in there. So you shut that door, and you walk on down the hall, and here's another door, and you open that. Maybe this room is empty, but you open that door, and that room is filled with doubt, All the doubts that you've always had and and concerns, even about your Christianity. So you shut that door because there's no room in there. You walk across the hall and you open that door there. And that, that room, no, there's no room there. That room is filled with fear. Fear of tomorrow. Fear of losing your job. Fear of what's happening with your family. It's completely full. So you shut that door and you walk on down the hall. And you find another, oh, here's another door. Maybe this room will be empty. I'll walk in here and you, you open that door. Maybe this is a room for Jesus. And you walk in that door, but it's filled with games. It's filled with video games or pleasure-seeking efforts and the time that they require. There's no room in that room of, of your heart. And you check out the next room and hoping again you're going to find a room that's empty and vacant. And you walk down the hall and you open the next door, the next door, and there it is. You open that door. But that room is filled with Facebook and all the time that it has robbed you of. Oh, it's quiet in here. And you look to the last door, but it's occupied when you open the door. It's occupied with relationships. Here's the point, church. The person who is giving to Christ the gift of gold. The gift of obedience is not necessarily handing him money, 
but rather is handing the Lord full access to any room of your heart and to all the rooms of your heart. And the person who today is giving the gift of gold and the gift of obedience is essentially saying this to the Lord. When you, Lord Jesus, when you walk down the halls of my heart, if there is any room that you want and you open that door and someone's in there, I will be quick to evict whoever and whatever is in that room so that that room is holy and completely yours and yours alone. That's the giving of gold, which is exactly why I have called for a church-wide fast for the first week of January so that we subject ourselves to a cleansing of any and all activity that we make it abundantly clear. We're going to realign. We subject ourselves to a cleansing of all activity, any and all distractions ever, how uh, simple they may seem to be, ever how pure they might seem to be. They might be a distraction. That's why we're calling for a week of fast. For any and all to be cleansed of any and all attachments, no matter how innocent they may appear to be. The truth is, I'm sure for you as it is for me, as we walk this journey of life, we find ourselves just becoming attached to this thing and to that thing. And we, we tend to grab on to this and grab on to that. But what it has done, dear friend, if your story is like mine, it has filled the rooms of your heart. And to the point that when the Lord walks down the hall and opens the door and He looks, every room is, is full. And so the call is going forth to us in whatever way is appropriate, whatever fasting method is appropriate for you to join us in a church-wide effort to ask God for cleansing, to bring the first fruits of our new year so that our first gift is the gift of gold, the gift of obedience to seek His will and His way for each of us as individuals, as a church, and as a nation. Our first gift is the gift of gold, the gift of obedience, because it is the first gift that is fit for a king. And if he is the king and we are his subjects, we live lives that obey him. Second gift, the gift of frankincense, or what we're going to refer to as the gift of worship. Frankincense was used as incense. It was used to make up a special blend of incense that was used in the temple and only in the temple. I'm in Exodus chapter 30, starting with verse 34. Then the Lord said to Moses, gather fragrant spices, resin droplets, mollusk shell, and galbanum, and mix these fragrant spices with pure frankincense weighed out in equal amounts. Using the usual techniques of the incense maker, blend the spices together and sprinkle them with salt to produce a pure and holy incense. Grind some of the mixture into a very fine powder and put it in front of the Ark of the Covenant where I will meet you with what I will meet with you in the tabernacle. You must treat this incense as most holy. Never use this formula to make this incense for yourselves. It is reserved for the Lord and you must treat it as holy. Anyone who makes incense like this for personal use will be cut off from the community. Incense, church, represents the prayers and worship 
of God's people. The altar of incense was just outside the Holy of Holies, the place where the glory of God was thought to dwell. And there are several places where we, where we see incense associated with worship. Happens in Psalm, the psalmist gives, gives it to us in Psalm 141, where he says, Accept my prayer as incense offered to you, and my upraised hands as an evening offering. We see it in Revelation chapter 5. I love this. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Do you know that your prayers are are held before the throne of God in bowls? They're not forgotten about. You will have long forgotten them. But the prayers that you prayed, dear mom, for your kids... Dear dad prayed for your kids years ago. Those prayers are still resonating before the throne of God today because they are held in bowls according to the book of Revelation. Because incense was associated with worship, incense was only to be offered in the temple. Now, there have always been specifications about worship, the way we worship, that which is involved with our worship, and most certainly who and what we worship. And we must always remember this, that the first of the Ten Commandments said this, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Second Chronicles chapter 34, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it shall not be quenched. Frankincense represents the gift of worship that we offer God. And you know, church, you know this. Any church that I have ever thought of would know this. No church knows this better than Bethesda. There is such amazing power in worship. Did you hear me this morning? Oral Hershiser pitched an unbelievable 1988 season for the Los Angeles Dodgers. You baseball aficionados will know this to be true. I confirmed this information with my dear brother Jack, who is number one baseball guy in the church. During the playoffs, the TV cameras zoomed in and caught Oral in the dugout between innings, singing something softly to himself. Unable to quite make out the tune or tell exactly what he was singing, the announcers merely commented that his, his pitching record certainly gave him something to sing about. So Johnny Carson, a name some of you will remember, replayed that tape of that game and and the camera zooming in on him in the dugout. Johnny Carson replayed that tape on The Tonight Show a few days later when Oral appeared on his show. And so Johnny asked him, what song was it that you were singing during the game? And then he went on to say, "And, and would you sing it right here, right now on The Tonight Show? Well, you know what happened. The audience roared, and, and, and they expressed their approval and over Oral's embarrassed reluctance. You know, I don't know that he called himself a singer. So on national TV, at the invitation of Johnny Carson to sing the song that he had been quietly singing to himself, Oral softly sang the tune that the TV crews had barely captured him singing in the dugout just a few days before. And it was this, praise God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Come on, you know it. Praise Father, Son. It was such a powerful moment 
that it would be used again for Carson's final episode as one of the key highlights of the show's long history. So church, this Christmas, I encourage you to offer Jesus the gift of gold, the gift of obedience. But I think we should be bringing him the gift of frankincense, the gift of worship. And why wouldn't we worship him? Why wouldn't we worship him? When you look around you and you see the magnitude of the earth and all of its beauties, when you think about the great redwoods of the West Coast or the wonders like the Grand Canyon and the Niagara Falls, you take your mind to places like Mount Everest that rises five and a half miles above the face of the earth, or you stand at the coast and consider the vastness of the oceans and the seas, why wouldn't we worship him? Why wouldn't we have a renewed understanding of how great is our God? Imagine lying on your back on a clear night and taking in the enormity of space with its billions of miles and as many planets and stars. How awesome is our Creator who gave it all to us to enjoy and to manage. How awesome is our God who in His infinite, omnipotent, creative mind simply spoke the Word and all things came into existence. Who wouldn't want to bless the Lord? Who wouldn't want to say how great is our God? Think to yourself how awesome and magnificent the creation is. And yet, we are told not to worship the creation, as many do, but rather to worship the God of the creation. As big as it all is, God is bigger. As infinite as it all is, God is more infinite. As awesome as it all is, God is more awesome than our minds can possibly ever imagine. Think of all the stars that you see at night and the enormity of the distance between them. The distance from the sun to the closest star, which is named Proxima Centauri, is over four light years, which is almost equal to 25 trillion miles. Wrap your brain around that. 25 trillion miles from the sun to its closest star. Now, from the earth, you can see this star that's so far away. But I'm told that if you were to travel there and look back on the earth, do you know what you would see? Absolutely nothing. You would not see a thing because our earth is so small, you would never find it. It would be looking like, like looking for a speck of dirt from the top of a water tower. So go with me here. I just want you to see how great our God is. Imagine looking from the heavens, now that we understand the expanse of the universe, looking from the heavens and finding that little nation of Israel from that star. Or better yet, looking for the town of Bethlehem and within the city of Bethlehem, looking for a virgin girl named Mary, one girl out of a few billion on the planet from almost 25 trillion miles away. And if that's hard to imagine, let's take it further. Let's make it real and say, try to find that one microscopic egg that she carried deep within her body. And you figure out how the God of the universe, which is beyond our ability to even imagine, took his infinite, omnipotent being, all that he was and is and ever shall be, and he put it all inside that one little egg and miraculously fertilized it. How great is our God? For the angel came and announced it. You will bring forth a son. And from the promise of the Messiah to the arrival of Jesus. God was at work preparing that body 
that the only begotten Son would occupy. And He was no ordinary Son. He is the Son of God. And only a God who is worthy of your worship today, church, this morning could have done that. So we're bringing Him our gift of gold, our obedience, because He is the King. We're bringing Him our gift of frankincense, which is our worship, because no one else is worthy. No one else is like our God. Who is like our God? No, 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 no. No one. No one else can do what He can do. For how great is our God, and He's greatly to be praised. And finally, we bring Him the gift of myrrh, which we are referencing as the gift of thanks. Myrrh was another expensive item at the time of Jesus. It was used as a perfume and is mentioned several times in the Song of Solomon. It is probably the perfume that Mary poured at the feet of Jesus from the alabaster box looking toward His death. Because of its pleasing aroma, it was also used to prepare bodies for those who had died for the purposes of removing the odor of death. John chapter 19 says this, Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had, been in a secret, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jesus' burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body in the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The gift of myrrh represented the death that Jesus was going to die for each one of us when the Magi brought it to him. Even at his birth, his reason for coming to the earth was clear. He came to give his life for us. And just like Mary, I see the gift of myrrh as the gift of thanks, the gift of absolute intense gratitude. It is a recognition of what Jesus has done for us in our response to his sacrifice. Church, God demands our obedience. He deserves our worship, but he desires our thankful hearts. And all too often, we simply take for granted what God has done for us. Certainly in this Western culture and this Western Americanized mentality, we take it all for granted, everything that we have. But a thankful heart can change your life. Everything in life is different when it is received with thanksgiving. I'm going to say that again. Everything in life is different when it is received with thanksgiving. So what gift of thanksgiving can you give Christ this Christmas? It was the day after Christmas at a church in San Francisco. Pastor Dave was looking at the nativity scene outside when he noticed the baby Jesus was missing from the figures. So immediately, Pastor Dave turned toward the church to go and call the police and see who possibly had stolen the baby Jesus out of the nativity scene. But as he was about to do so, he saw little Jimmy with a red wagon, and in the wagon was the figure of the little infant Jesus. So Pastor Dave walked up to Jimmy and he said, uh, Hey, Jimmy, where did, you, um, where did you get that little infant? Jimmy replied, Oh, oh, I got him from the church. And why did you take him? With a sheepish smile, Jimmy said, Well, about a week before Christmas, I prayed to little Lord Jesus. And I told him if he would bring me a red wagon for Christmas, he would be the first to get a ride around the block in it. Church, this Christmas is the best time for you to give thanks to the Lord for all that He has done. 
Just recall with me, and I'm bringing this to a close. If you'll stay with me just one, two, three, four more minutes. <laughs> Jesus laid aside his majesty, and he was born in a manger so that he could die on a cross for us. Isaiah reminds us this Christmas that Jesus was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He was despised. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, punished in our place. Jesus took the iniquity of us all and died for us so that you and I could have life and life everlasting. Therefore, we bring the gift of gold, the gift of obedience. We bring the gift of frankincense, the gift of worship, and we bring the gift of myrrh, our gift of thanks. Bow your heads with me, please. No one leaving where you are right now. We won't be long. Prayer team, if you would come in quietly and quickly, take, take your place. I'm going to give an appeal this morning because I'm more than confident that some of you have heard the message today. And I'm asking you, what gift are you bringing? Is your heart responding to the Lord today? We're going to open these altars. And you're going to be given the opportunity in just a moment to leave where you're standing, a balcony, main floor, as Pastor Brent leads us in song, to let someone simply pray for you. And it does not matter. It is completely irrelevant. If you are coming for the first time and you are accepting Christ for the first time in this season, Somehow you have grasped the understanding today, the magnitude of what he has done for you and why he came and the trajectory of his life was for your salvation and for you to have life everlasting. It's completely irrelevant if it's your first time or your, or your 500th time. It doesn't matter. But something in your heart is saying, today I want to bring my gift to Christ. And I'm bringing, some of you may be bringing the gift of gold, the gift of obedience, some of you are, for the first time, making Christ the king of your life. And you're declaring, he's the boss. I've made a wreck of my life. And so I'm going to entrust my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to give myself to him and declare Jesus to be Lord. Some of you are coming to bring your gift of gold, the gift of obedience, committing to, ev to evict rooms of distractions, to get rid of those things that have stood in the way, taken your time, taken your energies, taken your resources and allowed, not, a, not given proper place to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you today are going to bring the gift of frankincense or the gift of worship. Maybe you've realized you've been slack with your worship. Maybe you've not allowed yourself to really enter into the Holy of Holies to worship Him. Maybe you only come and casually sing songs and don't really unclutter your heart to be able to exalt the name of Jesus. Maybe you've allowed your gaze to go elsewhere or other things have captured your attention. But you are saying today, I am bringing this Christmas the gift of frankincense, the gift of worship. And I'm saying today that I will have no other gods before him. Or maybe when we sing in just a moment, you're saying as you come forward, I'm bringing the gift of myrrh. I'm bringing the gift of thanks. My coming today is to make clear to the Lord that I'm eternally grateful for the gift of life that He has given to me. I recognize that for me to have life, it, life, it cost Him His life, and I'm just so very grateful. So let's stand together. As we have made this appeal, I want you to come from the balcony. We'll wait for you. I want you to come from the main floor. Just simply tell the person next to you you're going to step out from where you are. And let's bring gifts today to the Lord Jesus Christ as Pastor Brent leads us.